Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse and Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. All cats are gray by Andrew North, or as actually it really turns out to be Andre Norton. Which is that even her real name? Um, she is a female author who uses male pseudonyms. Indeed, um, she was born Alice but changed her name uh, in her 20s so that it legally was Andre Norton, uh, explicitly so that she would be able to use her real name and yet attract a wider audience by being understood as a male author. Mm-hmm. This story first appeared in Fantastic Universe in 1953, and uh, it's I think it's fairly interesting. Um, let me give a short description of the plot. It basically is a tall tale of space. Uh, Stina of the Spaceways is the main character. She is a uh, computer tech, I think, uh, who can work the big computers on the big spaceships, plying the space lanes between the planets of our solar system. And she uh, is given a cat as a reward or uh, as an inducement by a fellow space traveler. And later, she and the cat and the giver of the cat go hunting a salvage of a ship called the, uh, the no, the Empress of Mars, not the Queen of Mars, where they encounter a ghost. And then there's a happy ending. Is that what happens in the story, Eric? Uh, you know, I'm checking my memory, but it seems to me that um, it was Bub Nelson who gave her the cat just as um, a gift because people keep trying to give her gifts for their good advice that she gives them. Um, mm-hmm. But he was the only one who succeeded. Um, Bub is not, in fact, the person who goes off and solves the mystery with her. That's another Slick fellow named Cliff Moran. Right, and I think that uh, it, it's it's worth noting uh, because I think the story has an awful lot to do with um, sexuality, with mm. hidden sexuality, with mm-hmm. an ambivalence about being female, and uh, I think that uh, Stina comes to being female um, in a conventional way, um, but a heroic way. Um, in slow stages. I agree. I, I think that the the sexuality reading is uh, fairly obvious with the uh, with the bed and the and the cat and uh, a number of things. But uh, I'd like, uh, as always, I bow to your your, <laughs> your deeper knowledge in this area. Um, I think this is also kind of a fun story because it plays with the with the conventions of sort of pulpy, spacey uh, space opera, in that it's a tall tale being told by an unnamed narrator who says that he was the one to first tell this tale, and that this is obviously a retelling of that tale. And yet it's not that big a tall tale. It seems much more like a... um, 
it's it's kind of small in scale. There, there's not a lot of death. Um, a couple of people get rich. It's it's kind of like um, a tale of the Klondike Gold Rush, you know? Yeah. It's or exactly a, a nautical, nautical story of, uh, you know, ship salvage or something like that. It's, it's not uh, planet-smashing uh, space invasion sort of thing. Both of those... Uh archetypes are actually mentioned in the story mm-hmm. um we get a reference to the flying dutchman yeah uh, which is a story about a, a ghost driven ship that can never come to port and um lures those who come to it to their death uh which is what has happened approaching the empress of mars which itself is a reminder of edgar rice burroughs princess of mars i mean Presumably, mm-hmm. the Empress of Mars is even greater and more powerful. Um, so this, yeah, as you say, it's it's a genre story. Um, and then there's also uh, turns out that one of the advices that Stina has given people, because she knows to keep her mouth shut and listen a lot, and she's very smart. She can work the calculator, the giant calculator, which is gray, uh, mm-hmm. just just like, like her. <laughs> exactly. Um, it says it was Stina. Who told Bub Nelson about the Joven Moonrites, and her warning saved Bub's life six months later. It was Stina who identified the piece of stone Keen Clark was passing around a table one night, rightly calling it unworked slitite. <laughs> that started a rush which made ten fortunes overnight for men who were down to their last jets. And last of all, she cracked the case of the Empress of Mars. Now, that, that correct observation um, that she was able to pass along to Keen Clark um, is really, I, I, I don't know much about Andre Norton's education, but, but Kenneth Clark uh, was a great art historian, and uh, he could see things aright. Uh, apparently, so could Stina, even though, uh, as we will later find, she has some visual problems that I'm sure you'll tell us about. But right mm-hmm. here... She has said something to Keen Clark that starts, as you said, a Klondike-like gold rush. On the other hand, what she identified that none of the others was able to, presumably all men, because she seems to be only female in these space bars, is called slitite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I can't help but think that there is a rather vulgar joke behind that. Indeed. Yes. Um, there is actually a stone called slitite, and it is not of any value. Um, it is it is just a, a sedimentary rock. So I mean, it's not normally called that in English, but um, I th- I think that this is supposed to be a different kind of valuable gem, <laughs> a gem rock or something, right? Right. Um, that'll lead to something uh, of value, perhaps. Maybe it's worth talking about our vision since you're giving us a an sure. So uh, the it turns out that she the reason she can see this ghost is because or whatever it is is because uh she's colorblind and this has been a deep dark secret that she hasn't told anybody um when she's given a gray cat uh she's pleased by this um even though the cat doesn't seem to like her at first um but she's kind of standoffish so she and the the cat go together she has gray hair she wears a gray space all which i assume is like a coverall this is what eric would call Transformed language, right? Yes. Um, there's a lot of transformed language in this story. Um, as low as an Ant-Man's belly. 
<laughs> well, right. that, that actually I would handle a different way, if I may. I, when I say sure. transformed language, what I, <clears throat> I'm referring to is a locution that reminds us that we are not in Kansas anymore. This isn't our right. world. But it also tells us in what ways we have changed from being in Kansas. Um, so, uh, for example, um, when it says in the space merchants of a particular uh, woman, she was from a deeply moral sales-fearing home, <laughs> we realize that sales has overtaken God as mm -hmm. the, uh, the absolute against which one has to measure moral development. Uh, that's a transformation of God-fearing into sales-fearing. Um, I think that space alls as a transformation of overalls uh, is a transformation of space as being everything instead of mm -hmm. the mundane notion of just your bodily parts that we have in overalls. And so mm -hmm. I, that I would call transform language. But but that line you just quoted about lower than an ant's belly, uh, an ant man's belly, mm -hmm. um, that's very reminiscent of a famous observation by uh, Heinlein that the best kind, he, he was asked, what's the ideal style for science fiction? And he said he didn't know how to describe it, but an example of it is um, the door dilated open before him. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it was the door dilated, closed behind him. I forget. It actually is almost exactly used in the beginning of uh, uh, The Door into Summer mm -hmm. um, by Heinlein. Um, and the point that Heinlein is making there is that when you say the door dilated, closed behind him, or dilated open before him as it does in The Door into Summer, um, I'm sorry, that may be beyond this horizon. Uh, I, no, I think you're right. It's in multiple books by him. He, right. It's also a cat book, which is another nice cat. It's another nice Heinlein motif, indeed. So Heinlein's point about that language is that we don't actually know how the door is constructed, but we know that in our world, doors are rectangular. We also know that to just for no other reason than to have the door be automatic, you decide to spend the extra resources necessary to make it both circular and motor-driven represents, implicitly tells us we're in a world that is richer than ours, technologically advanced over ours. Um, it has to do with the notion of sight, you know, it irised open. Um, and we know where we usually associate the word iris um, in English, although it comes from a word meaning rainbow. Um, and so what Heinlein is getting us to recognize is that the most economical kind of style does world creation without having to have these info dumps. We mm -hmm. just say, well, it does this, it does that. And Andre Norton really does that beautifully. You know, she's, when she says space alls, um, that is transformed language, but it's also this kind of Heinleinian implic implicatory language. Ah, well, we know we're in a world where space is this and so on and so forth. So when it says that Cliff Moran blew in, looking lower than an ant man's belly and twice as nasty, we 
have no idea what an Ant-Man looks like, but probably he's called an Ant-Man because he's more horizontal than vertical. And as far as how nasty they are, well, since we've never heard of them before, for all we know, Ant-Men are actually utopian, um, <laughs> lovely people. But by saying, and twice as nasty, we are told by implication that, by golly, they are little insecty things. We are They're pests. They're vermin. And so <clears throat> their belly is picking up crap by scraping along the ground. And Cliff Moran was looking even twice as nasty uh, as an Ant-Man. Um, all of that is making uh, the vehicle for a metaphor, or in this case, a simile, where we've never seen the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is sort of Heinlein's notion of implicatory style. You create now um, a whole universe because, after all, in this particular space bar that Stina is uh, sitting, when Cliff Moran blows in, there are no Ant-Men. So there must be other places and other planets that have other species. So we're getting a whole universe implied by simplest little phrase. What looks like an interesting characterization of Cliff Moran actually contributes to the world building. And that's, I think, genre style often at its best. Indeed. Um, this, is a, this is a very, very uh, good example of a certain kind of science fiction that was really building up right around this period. And it, it does a ton of world building in a very short amount of space. This is just a, a very few pages story. And yet we do get a, a picture of the frontier solar system spaceways. And given that, you know, these, this story has been told again, perhaps at, at another one of these bars with the narrator telling it in sort of the, uh, way that we are in on all of these transformations of language and assume them to be just normal. Uh, it gives, it gives a depth that you don't see in sort of, um, uh, in, in a story that would be by someone who's less versed in the field, if you know what I mean. I this is, sorry, go for it. No, I just said I do. I'm agreeing with you. Um, I, I think another, another um, example of Norton's uh, sophistication in the use of relatively widely diffused artistic tools comes in the very first s- sentence and then the, that first paragraph in the way in which it implicitly characterizes the narrator. All right, so all of this is coming to us as a first-person narration. It's someone who's sitting in a bar telling the story. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, Stina of the Spaceways, that sounds just like a corny title for one of the stellar veto spreads. I ought to know. I've tried my hand at writing enough of them. Only this Stina was no glamour babe. Now, before we go on, she was as colorless as a lunar plant. Again, you know, that's, you know, we've never seen any lunar plants, but we sort of figure since the moon looks gray, if they existed, this is what they would look like. It's, again, making up a new world for us, a new universe. But look at this. The fellow says, I ought to know. I've tried my hand at writing enough of them. Well, Mm -hmm. first of all, we don't know what a stellar veto spread is, but it sounds like some kind of future 
entertainment form. So we'll mm -hmm. just accept it as being in the future. Second, since he says, I've tried my hand at writing enough of them, by implication, it means he's never actually published any of them. He's never mm -hmm. succeeded before. And in fact, he tells us that he's telling us the story of Stina now, although he has previously told it since he was the first one to tell it. So mm -hmm. he's still trying to get this story right. This whole story is coming to us from a narrator who is, in fact, an unskillful narrator, which means that the author is giving us a skillful rendition of an unskillful author. That mm -hmm. level of sophistication adds a kind of joy to the reading experience that can't come out of just knowing the rules of formula fiction. This is real artistry. Mm -hmm. She's um, she's she's sort of well known for really pleasing uh, the people who read her. She, Andre Norton, that is. There's a lot of novels where we've got a protagonist, they're in a situation, and we don't know how it's all going to play out, but the reader is really entertained during the process of the read. And I found that to be the case with this particular story, too. It's It's not so much a deep story as... It is a fun story, and yet, um, like a lot of the stories, especially of this period, from around 1952 to 1955, um, there were almost, I think, 50 uh, science fiction or related magazines in production. This is the, the high point, um, and because of that, there was a lot of pages to fill, and this I would classify as one of the uh, more standard styles of telling a story, which is it's basically a joke story. I don't know if you you, you got the joke. Um, um, it has all of the stuff we've been talking about it, um, but it comes from the title, and I, I would like to tell the, the joke, if you don't mind. I wish you would. Okay, so um, uh, as with many science fiction uh, stories, and probably outside of uh, science fiction as well, although I'm, I'm less versed in it, um, authors, uh, we know one thing about authors, they love to read. At least they did at one point. <laughs> and so they, they pick up uh, lines from here and there, from poetry often, or from uh, books of verse, right? And they just take them and they sort of keep them, and then eventually... Uh, they use them as a title for a story, and I believe that's exactly what's going on here. All Cats Are Grey is the substantive portion of the story in that, actually, wait a second, there's only one cat, and it is grey, right? So what does this All Cats Are Grey, does this, is this other character, Stina, a cat? Uh, yes, that fits, fits in with the sexual imagery as well, right? A little bit. Um... There's some fun stuff of her when, remember, she's confronting the the monster. She takes off her uh, hair. Maybe you should explain about this monster. I don't... Did, okay. Yeah. Sure. So um, the Empress of uh, Mars has been uh, a space ghost ship. I think it said something like in the deep of night, right? Um, how, did, how does it go? Well, it's a space space flying Dutchman, 
um, they set on recovering it uh, in order to relieve their their lack of funds. If they can capture this ship that many have tried to capture before, um, they will be set. It's full of gold and treasures, and itself it will wor- be worth a t- ton of money. Uh, indeed, at the end, that's what they get. But there's something that's been preventing people from recovering it, even those who who have survived trying to recover it. And it turns out that there's some sort of invisible monster on board the ship, perhaps an alien, uh, maybe a ghost. If it's a ghost, it can be destroyed uh, because that's exactly what happens. Um, this is also ties into uh, a couple of other stories. There's the Horla by or La Hola, Hola uh, by Guy de Montpassant from 1887. Um, there's the Fitzjames O'Brien story with the first, perhaps the first invisibility sort of, uh, other than in the Ring of Gyges, um, Fitzjames O'Brien stories, What Was It, um, from about 1860. And, uh, and then Dean Koontz has a novel called Phantoms, which is, I think, a pretty, pretty good novel. Um, and it has a lot of what we see here. Um, there's a sink full of jewels, just as there's a bed covered in jewels or a heap of jewels on a bed um, and an invisible monster that's killed everybody off. Um, so I, I, I guess that's about all we know about the monster other than um, it just so happens that Stina is able to see it because it is another shade of gray to her, but it's it's invisible to people without uh, her kind of vision, quote-unquote, disability. The cat can see it, she can see it, but any other regular folks with regular vision cannot. And that's what saves them. That she can see it. Mm-hmm. Right? So All Cats Are Gray is a reference to... It's a reference to a line from a Benjamin Franklin uh, letter that's, uh, I would say, fairly famous. Um, <laughs> um, it's in a, a book, uh, I'm sure, and it's uh, advice to a young man on the choice of a mistress, 1745. <laughs> um, June 25th, 1745, my dear friend, and he starts, I know of no medicine, dot, dot, dot. And then um, he says, uh, (laughs) um, I'll just find the exact part of the letter here. Here it is. Um, In the fifth paragraph. Um, So, that covering all the above with a basket and regarding only what is below the girdle, it is impossible of two women to know an old from a young one. And... As in the dark, all cats are gray. The pleasure of corporal enjoyment with an old woman is at least equal and frequently superior, every knack being by practice capable of improvement. <laughs> so um, who is the uh, who are who again are the uh, the old gray cats here? The old gray cats are. Um, I would say Stina is the old gray cat. She is, um, she is not a glamour babe. We don't get much of a description of her other than she's dresses in gray. She's got 
what appears to be gray hair. She's quiet. Uh, she's in the background. She's kind of grumpy, taciturn, perhaps. Um, and yet, at one point in the story, she removes her her hair covering, um, lets down her hair, um, and uh, blasts <laughs> blasts the uh, the creature out of uh, existence. She ends up subsequently being coupled with her fellow uh, salvager, um, and they act as a family uh, along with the cat later on. I think it's worth mentioning that when we first see her, she is described as having her hair tightly bunned up on her head. So mm-hmm. letting down her hair is something that Norton has prepared us for. Mm-hmm. All right, She wants us to see that as more important than just her hair happened to come loose while she was fighting mm-hmm. this to ordinary eyes invisible monster. I, I think that there is a as I suggested, uh, and, and you see it too, um, this move towards sexuality. Um, she lets down her hair. Um, she accepts a, a pussy, um, mm-hmm. but it's a tomcat who does not as at first like her, but they, they finally get along. And Bub Nelson was able to see that she might want something like that. Um, she takes up with Cliff Moran because... This finally is a quest worthy of her. And she doesn't seem to care about money. So mm-hmm. you kind of kind of have to wonder whether or not having had her, her cat for a while, she's sort of coming to be a little bit more open to the possibility of uh, spending some time with a man. Uh, there's an interesting thing going on. They, they manage, she manages to get rid of the ghost, monster, alien, whatever it is. Um, and then we get another one of these references um, to what happens as the sequel. Um, she, uh, in fact, marries the guy. She marries Cliff. Um, and it says at the end of the story, um, right, but uh, there weren't any more, and any more ghosts on the ship. And two weeks later, Cliff, Stina, and Bat Bat is the name of the uh, the cat. Uh, maybe a reference to uh, to Alice in Wonderland, bats and cats, and so on. Dinah is killing them. Uh, brought the Empress into the lunar quarantine station, and that is the end of Stina's story. Because as we have been told, happy marriages need no chronicles, which mm-hmm. echoes, of course, that famous first line of um, Anna Karenina, where Tolstoy says that. All happy families are the same, only unhappy families are interesting, Um, which, by the way, I think is wrong. That helps us understand (laughs) Tolstoy's narrator. Uh, Happy families aren't all the same. Um, But anyway, so as we have been told, by whom? Obviously, our narrator here is a failed writer of stellar vetoes. And so he probably, like other writers, as you mentioned, likes to read. So he's read Tolstoy. And so we're really virtually at the end of the story now. We're within 10 lines of it. And Stina had found someone who knew of her gray world and did not find it hard to share with her, someone besides Bat. So she's graduated from a tomcat to a man, um, another tomcat. It turned out to be a real love match. Now, that's an interesting 
statement. I know it's our narrator making it, um, but what does Andre Norton have our narrator write? The last time I saw her, she was wrapped in a flame red cloak from the looms of Rigel and wore a fortune in Joven rubies blazing on her wrists. Cliff was flipping a three-figure credit bill to a waiter, and Bat had a row of vernal juice glasses set up before him, just a little family party out on the town. Well, rubies and flame red are both signs of passion. Mm -hmm. But we know that Stina would not have been able to pick out those things for herself by color. So what has happened here is that Cliff is dressing her he is choosing her garments, and she's accepting his judgment about how to look really, really nifty. He's dressing her as passionate, and now, in fact, she is passionate because she's become a woman. But notice that she has become a woman in the most conventional fairy tale way. <laughs> she's got the money and married. Right? She's gotten herself married, and the last shot that we see of them, a little family party out on the town has a man, a woman, and a cat. This is a family with no children. This is not, in 1953, the definition of family. But in fact, it turns out, in Andre Norton's life, this was very much what was necessary because she never married. And never had children. And although she was very, very private about her own life, so we can't say anything with certainty, it does seem clear that she never had any heterosexual romantic relationships. I, I don't mean to imply that she had homosexual ones. We don't know that either. But she's writing a story from the viewpoint of someone that is the, the, the would-be writer who sees marriage as a happy outcome. And she, the author, has created a story in which Sheena has gone from having her hair in a tight bun in gray all over to being flame red and full of rubies. Uh, the name, Stina, mm -hmm. is interesting. I mean, Stina, after all, it's cognate with the old English word stone. Um, she's a hard woman. And she's a hard woman who ultimately has representation in the rubies that she wears. Um, but that that phrase, Stina of the Spaceways, um, we're told that that it sounds like the corny title for one of the Stellar Vito spreads. Well, actually, what it sounds like is the corny title of a comic book, mm -hmm. because Sheena, Queen of the Jungle was in fact the very first comic book heroine to have a comic book series with her own name in the title. And she was, in fact, out there fighting things, cleverer than anybody else, and never tamed by a man. So Stina of the Spaceways starts out as a repressed gray version of Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, and ends up as a tamed Empress of Mars, who presumably doesn't mind being tamed because she's finally happy now that she's found a romantic relationship. It's a very conventional ending 
to a story that's told in a very unconventional way when you look, as you have been saying as well, beyond the mere use of genre formulae. But there's always more to say, isn't there? 